together um, the book of Acts, uh, chapter 2, verses 42 to 47 in just a second. Um, but I want to remind you of what we're here to study. It is the uh, theme of Christians being a witness in Scripture. Uh, specifically in the book of Acts. And I love, I have loved in the past few weeks hearing stories from people and how they have stepped out to be a witness, uh, to share the word of God and the work of God in their life and to see the spirit of God uh, use that. It's been really fun. Um, the reality is that God doesn't need us for his mission, but he's pleased to use us. And so when we raise our hand and open our hearts and, and uh, trust him to, to use us, we find that it truly it's more blessed to give than receive, that in being vulnerable and sharing our faith, we actually find a fullness that we uh, didn't anticipate or expect. Uh, this week I heard from somebody uh, who told me, they said, uh, you know, I had forgotten that when I am intentionally being available to be used by God in other people's lives, I had forgotten how much it strengthened and encouraged my own faith. Uh, there was a direct proportion this person shared uh, in their own you know, confidence in their faith and fruitfulness in uh, giving to other folks. I had another person tell me that a barbershop, a haircut, turned into a holy moment when, while in the chair, they decided to share their testimony. Um, and talk about a captive audience. I hope that person, I didn't ask how much that person tipped, um, but I thought it was really, really cool uh, that they took advantage of that moment and just celebrating, bubbling up with like, hey, I had an opportunity to be a witness. And I've really, really enjoyed that fruit. Um, last week, we talked about the, the way that God empowers us. He gives us the word. It's his his work and his spirit from beginning to end. And if that's not enough for you, today we see that you are not alone in your witness, uh, that we have the design of God, which is collective, corporate, even collaborative, uh, that our, our life and love together would overflow and spill over uh, into uh, life and love of the world. We have strength in numbers. So with that in mind, I'm going to read the, the right verses, and I apologize again for getting my numbers mixed up. Instead of 24, it's actually 42. Instead of 27, it's actually 47. So we're going to read these verses. And they, these are Christians uh, who had come to faith the day before, um, they devoted themselves, the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers, and all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received the food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Before we unpack the word of the Lord, let's go to the Lord of the word together in prayer. Will you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your design and the privilege you give us, choosing us uh, to be your priesthood of believers, to be your ambassadors in this world. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would touch our hearts. Uh, I just confess, beginning right now, that this shepherd who's sharing your scriptures is struggling making the connection between your sovereignty and the reality of this world. 
I ask for a keen laser focus on your word that all of our hearts would experience the richness and the fullness of your sovereign grace. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. All right, here's the basic premise from today, all right? That what we celebrate in our community, the life and the love that the people of God share together will spill over into the world around us. That's the basic premise. We're going to unpack it, and that life and love translates into the witness in the world, this collective witness, strength in numbers. I saw a great illustration of this this week. Uh, maybe you saw the news on Highway 40 going through Tennessee, a tractor trailer uh, ripped open. And you know what that is spilling out all over the highway? That is Alfredo sauce. It spilled everywhere. They had to shut down Highway 40 because they had to clean up all the glass. And the, 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 uh, the, the TDOT guy, or the Texas Department of Public Safety, whoever it was, the cop that came on the scenes, they asked him, what was it like when you drove up? And you know what he said? He said, it smelled like Olive Garden. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, well, that's good product placement because giving is down. And if we can mention Olive Garden, then maybe we can get supplies. Just kidding. It's not. That's not. That's true. But maybe you heard like this, a story in June, you remember uh, in June of this year, when the tractor trailer that was carrying manure, cow manure in Florida, did you hear about this? It spilled and I couldn't get a picture of it, but apparently it looked a lot the same except without the glass shards. And you know what the police officer said when he came up on the scene? He said, wow, smells like Lubbock. <laughs> Just kidding. All right. Oh, ouch. Hey, oh, that hurt. That hurt. Hey, I lived there for two years. I can say it. When the wind blows east, plug your nose. Here's the point. Here's the illustration. There's a couple of y'all not laughing, and I feel really insecure. Like, if you're, if you're from Lubbock, no, man, I got nothing but love for Lubbock. All right. Davis Sweat, if you're watching this, then you know it's true. Um, all right. So here's the deal. Uh, the life and love of Christian community, it spills out. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of the world smells more of the Lubbock smell than the Olive Garden smell. The design is that we put off the aroma of Christ. And that happens when we allow ourselves to be filled with Christ's love, centered on Christ's work, under the authority of God's word, and celebrating life together. And what we read in this passage today is how the gospel, the, the work of the Spirit that has fallen at Pentecost, the fire that came on the apostles, that when though that flame is gathered together, when, when logs that are set on fire by God's grace come together, it really establishes a fire that is contagious. It smells like wildfire. The gospel, the Spirit restores relationship with God's word. Uh, we see that, and they sit on the authority of the apostles' teaching. Uh, the, the gospel, the Spirit restores relationship with one another. And we see that love is the key in the fabric of the fellowship of God's people. And we see that, that the relationship with God is restored, that there is regular daily worship. And that through all these reconciliations, these restorations of God's design, there is a renewed relationship with the world around them that people are being added to the numbers of the church day by day. That's what we just read about. Uh, and, you know, some Presbyterian pastors, I've heard of people like this, they may be tempted to alliterate in a really simple way, just so people can help remember it, you know? That the work of Pentecost, that the coming of the Spirit unites us in word, 
in our, in our, in our worship of one another, uh, in our welcome of each other in love, and in, in the witness to the world. I've heard there are pastors like that. I'm just going to use the word of Jesus. That this really is putting flesh on what Jesus taught in John 13. You see the verse, uh, you're, you're ready to get past the Olive Garden spillage. Uh, Jesus says, a new commandment that I give to you, to his disciples, that you will love one another just as I've loved you. You're also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, God's design for the witness of his people through the corporate fellowship of our life together the collaborative love, the, the mutual identity that we have, that we are Christ's people, we are children of God, we are the family of God, redeemed by the grace of God. That collective mutual identity leads to a reciprocal and mutual participation in one another's lives. And the purposes of this, it fuels and facilitates the light and the love through which God shows the world. We're designed to do this collectively. It's, it's this reason that in Mark 6, Jesus sends out his disciples two by two. And even all through scripture in Deuteronomy, the uh, validity of a witness's testimony is established in multiplicity. That is, there has to be at least two witnesses, according to Deuteronomy 19.15, to confirm the testimony of truth. Now, Jesus bridges this all through his teaching, but especially when he talks about his ecclesia, his assembly, the gathering of his people under the authority of his word in, in Matthew 18, 20. He says, where two or more are gathered, I'm with you also. This necessity to have a plurality is the embodiment of all of Scripture's teaching and the manifestation of especially the wisdom literature. You'll remember in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 and 12, where uh, the author, King Solomon, talks about the strength that comes in uh, community, that a cord of three strands can't be broken. C.T. Studd, the famous missionary, uh, said it this way, the light that shines the furthest burns the brightest at home. That is that when the people of God are really loving one another, sharing one another, they have gospel community, then the flame that fell at Pentecost will come together and the embers will be brought together and God will ignite a fire by which the world will come gather in warmth to warm themselves. We are not the authors of the fire. We don't start the fire. We are just conduits of the light and the heat of God's love. So what does it look like? How do we get there? Three quick things from this passage. Gospel community is the core of our corporate witness. Gladness and generosity are fruit of that corporate witness. And then the fruitfulness that comes will find both favor and friction. So first, gospel community is the core of court, corporal, uh, the corporate witness. And now this isn't just community. This isn't just getting into a, a community of affinity where, hey, I like to ride bikes, so I'm a part of this bike riding group, or I like to run, so I'm a part of this running group, uh, or I like this kind of food, so I'm a part of this group. This is not a self-focused, self-serving community. 
This is a community that is based on God's work where what we have in common is the grace of God that we have been ripped from the domain of darkness, transferred in the kingdom of God's beloved son through whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We are part of a family, a new family, where our father in heaven, it's his love that unites us and and our brother, Christ, our Lord and savior is the head of the body of the church. That is the design. It's it's based on God's word. Our unity is based on God's word as our authority. Uh, The work of God in Christ is our affinity and the worship of God is our algorithm. Did you stretch to alliterate there, Mitchell? Possibly, but don't judge me. All right, so first, Okay, the worship is authority. Look at uh, the way it's described in verse 32. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It's God's word through the apostles that is the common authority to God's people. That's why anywhere you go in the world, where people are born again Christians worshiping in faithful churches, it's the same word of God. It may be a different language. It may be different cultural expressions, but it's the same authority that unites us. Second, it's the work of Christ that is our affinity. The fellowship that is described in verse 42, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer together. This this fellowship, this koinonia is that Greek word. It it carries with us uh, this deep identification and participation. Uh, The reality, this is biblical, that when you're in Christ, your primary identity is not your zip code, your alma mater, your job, your skill set, your friend network. Your primary identity is Christian. Therefore, your primary community is not the Alumni Association. It's not your Workers Guild. It is not your college football excitement, although those things are fun. But your primary community is the church. It's the family of God. And so the affinity of Christ, the the new heart that comes in us, the new spirit that's given to us, the new creations that we become, express itself in a new community. That's what the Bible teaches. Thirdly, worship is the algorithm. Uh, They are worship. That just means the the, the formula. It is the way that we live life. They're dedicated, verse 42, the breaking of bread and prayers, uh, 47. They're praising God, uh, verse uh, 46. Day by day, they're attending the temple together. They're breaking bread in their homes. This regular rhythm of worship. It is seen in the individual lives, the, the homes, the rooms, uh, roommates, the, the places of, st- of where you live, everywhere we go, our daily rhythms are marked with worship. And so the work of God uh, is the center of our life. It's our affinity, but the worship of God is the algorithm. So it's a rhythm which, which we look, we live. Now, let me just say, prove this to you. Like this kind of community is exactly what transforms individuals. It transforms families and communities, and then it transforms the world. Okay. Without getting into too much detail, I'm going to give you an Old Testament example and a New Testament example. First, the Old Testament. You're very familiar with Ruth and Naomi from the Old Testament. Ruth was a Moabite. Naomi was an Israelite. Both of them were widows, exiles in the land. They had lost everything, totally devastated. How did God bring forth redemption, reconciliation, renewal? He did it through the fellowship of his people. They went back to Bethlehem and they met a guy named Boaz. And Boaz embodied God's law. 
He was a dude of dudes in how he loved and he lived his life. And through embodying God's word as the authority, having his work as the primary affinity and his life as worship daily, we find the restoration of Naomi who moved from bitterness, Mara, to blessing. And we find the restoration and the uh, repurposing of Ruth herself, who moved from being a widow to getting remarried, and she became the mother of Obed, who was the great-great-grandfather of King David, and she, uh, the Moabite widow, even goes into Jesus' genealogy we see at the beginning of Matthew. That all comes from the people of God. Old Testament, New Testament. If you go to one of the smallest books in the New Testament, it's a book called Philemon. And one of the main characters of Philemon is this guy named Onesimus. And Onesimus was a runaway slave from the church, uh, a house that uh, Philemon met in. Uh, it's a whole lot of culture to unpack there. Uh, it, is, it is the crown jewel of ending slavery in the New Testament. Um, it is a beautiful, uh, a beautiful picture of the way God redeems individuals, families, and a community, uh, and really takes down an evil institution like slavery and a whole empire. But suffice it to say now, Onesimus, who was a runaway, ended up coming to Christ when he went to Paul, who was in prison. And Paul uh, said he loved him as his own son, his very heart. This new family that forms from Onesimus coming to Christ. And then if you read Colossians verse, chapter 4, verse 19, Onesimus is the one that carries the letter of Colossae from Rome, where Paul was in prison, back to the church of Colossae. This former slave uh, was now a servant of Jesus and Paul commands in the letter of Philemon that he be welcomed as if Paul himself was coming. And it's this complete redefinition that, and one of the key words of the book of Philemon is the same root word koinonia, koinon, and it as a root word. And it is a powerful picture of how the community of God's people is a collective witness because the word of God is the authority, the work of God is the affinity, and the worship of God is our algorithm. This is normal, and we see it today too. I have the privilege and opportunity as a pastor of this congregation and as a, uh, somebody that serves in the city, I see God using the church to bring healing and wholeness, redemption and renewal all the time. We have many people in our congregation whose marriages have been saved because they have run towards God's word and run towards God's people. We have people who have struggled with mental health issues, who have run towards God's word, towards God's grace, towards God's people, and found healing and hope. Like we have lots of testimonies of God meeting folks in their brokenness and their suffering when they, when they had more questions than answers and they felt like that they needed to, to run and hide rather than come and be known. But when they expose themselves to the fire that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit working through his word and his work, there is a renewal that takes place. This is what God does among his people. Generous people who know God's love and who share God's love. And, it, and this is a spilling over in our lives that when we are God's children that we're truly overflowing uh, with the love of our Father for one another. Uh, the way that this passage unpacks that is using two words, uh, gladness and generosity. It doesn't smell like uh, Olive Garden. It smells like Jesus Christ, who is the embodiment of gladness and generosity. These are the fruit of corporate uh, witness. Now, if you look in your Bibles down in, uh, in verse 46, it says, I'm sorry, I'm trying to get this one note here that I 
had in my folder instead of out. But in verse 46, you see it very clearly that the breaking of bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Gladness and generosity is not something that Christians have to to make happen. It's something that is an overflow of knowing Christ and his grace and his mercy. Too often, people go to a Christian community with a self-focus more than a savior focus. That is, we are looking to get out of community something that is for us. Rather than having hearts transformed by the gospel, secure in his grace and his love, going to be conduits of his grace and love. A self-focused engagement of community is going to come to a church or going to come to a gospel community group or come to a Bible study, and you're going to have a general mentality of give me. Give me the relationship I need. Give me the experience I need. Give me the acceptance I need. Give me the sense of significance that I need. Give me, give me, give me. A savior focus is a heart that's touched by God's grace, recreated uh, for God's purposes, and you want to have a gospel mentality. Lord, I know your love. How can I show your love to others? Lord, I have your acceptance. How can I give people security and acceptance in the gospel? Lord, you've healed me. How can I be an agent of healing? Do you see the difference there? You see, the, the, the gladness and generosity, it's not so much a spiritual discipline as it is a fruit of Jesus working in your life. And gladness and generosity and the posture of Christians that come into corporate worship or fellowship in general is going to be marked with a Christ-likeness. Now, Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 5. Be therefore imitators of God as dearly loved children. We have an identity as children and an imperative to imitate God. Well, what's that look like? He says in verse two, love as Christ loved you and gave himself for you. You see the Olive Garden, excuse me, the Christ aroma that comes off of Christian love is cross-shaped, where we truly believe that we love as we've been loved, that we serve as we've been served, and that we have more of a cruciformity and looking like Christ, because Christ has loved us that way, than a culture conformity, where we see the church just as another reservoir to try to exploit and get what we need so we feel better about ourselves. Now, this is true for a congregation, but let me tell you, church, it's also true of pastors. And you've heard me confess my sin and my immaturity for years of pastoring. Oftentimes, I use the church to feel better about myself, caring more about a a sermon or a discipleship group or a service project reflecting better on me or the church than actually doing it because I've been changed by grace and I call to do it trusting God's sovereign grace and loving and leading people. You've heard me confess it. I don't hide it. I'm a sinner saved by grace. The temptation is for all of us to come into this place and use people for our own purposes. The gospel frees us to discover new life. Now, it's not saying we don't come. We need grace. We need hope. We need love. This is a place for broken people, but we find it in Christ. And the church gets to be the conduit of that for one another. Uh, There's, this is normal for God's people um, all through scripture. Uh, we see it in the life of, of like Zacchaeus, a heart that's touched by, by grace. He becomes a child of Abraham and he shares all that he has. But one of my favorite places, this is what we talked about uh, in our deep end sermon discussion in Sunday school class, uh, is in 2 Corinthians 8. 
verses one to seven, when Paul is describing the Macedonian church, he describes the Macedonian church as extremely poor and deeply afflicted. And the reason he describes them that way is because it highlights the radical generosity that they lived, that they disciplined themselves in response to God's grace to show the generous nature, the glad nature that comes from having a heart transformed by the gospel. And Paul uses them as an example. And when he describes why they were so generous, even from their extreme poverty, even from their severe affliction, this is the verse that he uses. Uh, this is why. He says, for you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by, so that by his poverty you might become rich, rich in grace, rich in love. And this is why gladness and generosity are really a fruit from our life. Uh, I, again, I love serving in a church that's extremely generous. And I had someone ask me a couple weeks ago uh, about how we're so generous with church plants in the city. They said, why in the world is this church so generous in supporting planters so creatively? Why are y'all going out of your way to support church planting? What's my answer? Because we're awesome, man. No, it's because we have this heritage of gospel transformation. God has been so generous to us that we have the privilege, the gift, the opportunity to be generous to, for kingdom advancement in our city and our congregation. You know, if we're not glad and generous from the gospel working in our hearts, then we're probably grumpy. We're probably not grateful. We're probably really frustrated. And you can really diagnose your own heart by looking at your level of gratitude and looking at the instinctive nature of your generosity or the lack thereof in some people's cases, in mine often. You see, when we sink the roots of our faith in the soil of God's salvation, we can't help but to be saturated with the love of God and our self-focus moves to being savior-focused and kingdom-focused. So generosity and gladness are fruit of gospel community. And this fruit we see in verse 47, they're praising God and it says that they had favor with all people. Favor with all people. Now favor is found when God's people are embracing God's design. We, it's so counterintuitive that we truly find blessing when we give. We truly find life when we die to ourselves. We truly find fullness when we empty ourselves for others. And that leads to favor. Favor for the early church, God is adding to their numbers, but what happens after that? We're gonna see again and again, one of the difficulties of being a witness is that it also encounters friction. The authorities of the culture become very, very threatened by it. Friction comes when the authority of religious and civil authority of their day uh, is uh, threatened and they attack it. They try to eliminate the, the influence of the church. And they really, the friction drives you to self-focus and autonomy. It, it, it puts water, a wet, a wet cloth on our faith. And we really begin to believe that we're gonna find our most security in the right political alignment or the right social status or the right number of zeros after our paycheck or the right kind of car we drive or the right friend network. We're really gonna start believing those things. When the friction comes, if we don't have a solid community that's gonna help us stay focused 
and cultivate the work of God in us. We can, we can be sure of this paradigm. You know, Jesus promised that there was friction that would come for following him, but we know we can have the favor of God because Jesus experienced the friction of this fallen world to the point of even fracturing his relationship with the Father. He cried out on the cross when he became sin, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he do that? So that we can know the favor of forgiveness. Now, if you're like me, you realize you're not as generous as you want to be. You're not as grateful as you should be. You're definitely not as glad as you could be. And those are because of idols in our heart, idols of greed, idols of self-sufficiency, idols of status and security. That it, you know, I haven't even been rich in forgiveness and shown forgiveness to people because it's easier to hold on to bitterness, right? It's just self-focused community. Um, and if you're like me, you know that you need that forgiveness. You need that grace so that you can be free. You find freedom from the penalty and the power of sin. And you're free to spread the love and the grace of God in Christ. That we can really discover our purpose of being his witness, called to be his light, to show his love in a dark and hateful world. So Jesus went to the grave, friends, so that we could be resurrected with glad hearts, no matter where we find our circumstances right now. No matter how deep our struggle is, how severe our poverty and affliction is, Christ was emptied of divinity, his divine place. He was fully God, but he emptied of that, uh, that status as God, but took the status of a servant so that we could be filled with the fullness of God's love and share it. And he witnessed the sovereign grace of God, fulfilling God's plan so that we can be forgiven even of our failures in showing witness. And that's why we come to this table. We come to this table to feast on his grace, to grow in the nourishment of his love for us. It was the night that Jesus was betrayed when his friends abandoned him, that he moved towards this place of acceptance. And at supper, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the cup and he poured it. And he said, this is a new covenant of my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. As long as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And in this meal, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Though Jesus is locally present at the right hand of the Father, he's spiritually present in these elements so that you can feast on the great exchange, that in your poverty, you might taste the richness of his grace, that in your mortality, you might feast upon the immortality of the new creation we have in Christ, that in our unrighteousness, you can feast on the righteousness of Christ given to you by faith. And that in our death, we can celebrate his life. We do not participate in this supper because we have nothing else to do with the last seven and a half minutes of our service. We do it because we need to be nourished to cultivate the gospel core in our lives so that that can be manifest in our love and our life together so that his love can be manifest and fueled in this world. So this is for all Christians. 
you're a Christian, you're part of the family of God, and you're a member in good standing with uh, a church, come and feast on God's sacrament. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this amazing grace shown to the cross. We ask that you would set these elements apart, set apart this bread and this cup from their common and ordinary use. And by the power of your spirit, we ask that you would use them in extraordinary ways. Nourish us with your grace, feed our faith, deepen our roots in the soil of your salvation, King Jesus, that we might know the gospel more fully and live for you more faithfully.